You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, true or false, September, the nicest month in Montana. This year, at least, true. False. It's true every year, so your response is false. I don't. Sometimes it just rains all September. Some not very often. It it rains all through June is when it rains. We do seem to be living in glorious times these days. You look out the window, you almost feel glad to be alive. That's a you know you bring up another interesting point here because I, just before we started recording this podcast, I said, "Are you ready to do this?" Like I always do, and you said, "I guess." In in a not, I would not say that your tone was excited. Listen, I'm not going to lie to you. Sitting here with you for the roughly hour and a half it takes us to record this show is the low light of my week. You know it's, that's not true. It's pretty much the worst thing that happens you, to You me. know that the, the exact opposite of that is true. You love this shit. You love coming over here. You love getting your gas station coffee. You love showing up 15 minutes late because you know it irks me. There's nothing about this experience that you don't love. I was basically on time today. You were a few minutes late. Well, so, but within the window. We we took three minutes out of your time bank when you show up five <laughs> what, minutes early. What's but, my account at right now? It's you're, you're in the black, dude. Red? You're in the red. Let's move on. Once again, this episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is brought to you by DraftKings.com. You've got UFC 192 this weekend featuring, among other things, Daniel Cormier versus Alexander Gustafson, a welterweight contender fight between Johnny Hendricks and Tyron Woodley, and the return of former light heavyweight champion Rashad Evans. I tell you what's going to happen, but you already know. How? Because you're just that good at this stuff. Here's your chance to turn that MMA knowledge into your own personal fortune. Just log on to DraftKings.com and play today. Select five fighters, stay under the salary cap, outscore your competition, and you could be on your way to a massive payday. Score points for significant strikes, takedowns, advances, knockdowns, and more. These are the biggest daily fantasy MMA contests anywhere, and only DraftKings has them. Ben, tell them how they can play for free this weekend. Well, Chad, they hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code CME. You play for free for a shot at $1 million in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Enter CME for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. You know who would have been a good play who? on DraftKings.com this past weekend? Who? Josh Barnett. Yeah. New promotional record, heavyweight record for significant strikes. There's a flip side way to look at that. You would have piled up the points. Which is from Roy Nelson's perspective. He would have been a poor play, I assume. <laughs> I can only assume. Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, I don't know who was responsible for making the cage side mic so hot that every huff, puff, groan, gurgle, and giggle came across as clear as day during Josh Barnett's record-setting victory over Roy Nelson on Saturday. But whoever it was, buy that person a beer. And in round two, Vitor Belfort is who we knew slash feared he was all along. And the UFC's in-house drug testing was what we knew 
slash feared it was as well. And in round number three, Big Dan Cormier fights Tall Al Gustafson this weekend at UFC 192 as the felonious J. Dwight Jones stands poised to cop a plea. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Dustin Dahlberg, and he writes, Oh shit, Uriah Hall, am I right? Uh, yes. Yes, Dustin Dahlberg, you are right. Oh shit, Uriah Hall indeed. Okay, let me ask you this, and I'm going to ask you this without coming down on either side for right now. I just want to put the question to you and hear your response. Did Uriah Hall get lucky? Well, yes, I would say yes, but, you know, there are those out there, I'm not sure if one of them is, is sitting in this room right now or not, who would tell you that there's no such thing as a lucky punch, or as the case may be, some lucky spinning shit followed up by an awesome lucky flying knee. Uh, because you throw those strikes, you intend to to land them, and they do land, and, and the young vagabond eventually gets knocked silly. Uh, so yeah, he got lucky, but like I'm not totally sure that that undermines what he done, right? Yeah, okay, and then I'm not... I see what you're saying with there's no such thing as a lucky punch. I mean, I, I think there is still such thing as a lucky. Like, if you close your eyes and just punch out into the darkness and you happen to win a world championship that way, that was a lucky punch. I don't think this was that exactly because I do think he said afterwards, like, hey, we looked at him on tape and we realized, like, if you launch into one of your spinning attacks, as Uriah Hall is known to do, the first thing he does is kind of try to duck down. Uh, and so... I figured, okay, I'll launch into it, and you can see him kind of turn and look. But there's not a lot of time to decide where that kick's going to go, and he lands it just right. So that would have to be really, really incredibly lucky. And I think if combined with analysis that got you to throw that in the first place, I don't think you can call that luck. But I will say it's luck that after that first round, and I mean, it's luck in the sense that every round starts on the feet. Because what we saw in the first round was Uriah Hall maybe can't stop... Gegard Musasi, the young vagabond, from getting him to the mat. And once there, he is probably in a world of shit. And so it's lucky in the sense that he managed to take advantage of that small window of opportunity when the fight was back on the feet through no doing of his own and capitalized on it. I guess I'm what I'm going to ask you next is, what does this tell you about Uriah Hall's future prospects at middleweight? Do you think that they're they're better now? considerably than you thought before this fight boy that's kind of a loaded question um that's right that looks if you came here for softballs you're in the wrong place which is to say your own house but go on i'm gonna say yeah i do feel a little bit better about his future prospects uh in the division but only because i think what he proved out there last weekend is that he's dangerous He's dangerous every second of the fight, and he can be dangerous against high-level competition, which was maybe the thing that we had not seen from him yet. Uh, because now everyone knows that you can't go out there and take Uriah Hall lightly, even for a moment, uh, because you can get spin-kicked right in your face like Gegard Mousasi did. I'm not, I mean, this also isn't the, the, a situation where I think Uriah Hall is going to show up at, like, number two in the rankings, right? Like, it would have been 
like what happened to Verdum years ago when he beat Fedor and all of a sudden he went from like, you know, number nine or number 10 heavyweight in the world. And people just like basically did like a find and replace for Fedor <laughs> in the, in the heavyweight top 10. Like, I don't think that that happens here with Uriah Hall, but like he can't take the win away from him. I think it lines him up for another fight against uh, another top contender. And, uh, you know, if he keeps knocking people out, which I guess is, is the game plan for him, then you got to, you got, you got to stop saying it's luck and, and then he'll, uh, he'll go about his merry way, as Ronda Rousey would say. Uh, but it definitely seemed like he pulled a card out of his back pocket to win this one. Yeah. I would not argue with that. I would also wonder what else did you just tell everybody else in the middleweight division with this fight? Because you're right. He did tell people like he can throw that spinning stuff. He's dangerous. He can always hurt you. Uh, he also told you, if you're looking for a safe way, to victory against Uriah Hall, you might want to get stuff to the ground. And you look around in that middleweight division, there's some dudes who know their way around a submission in that division. Yeah, and he did get get dominated on the ground in the first round, but but like, and this maybe is weird, but I came away from that first round uh, feeling surprised by Uriah Hall's ability to uh, get himself back to guard, to explode into a couple of submission attempts of his own on gay guard Musasi. Uh so even though he badly lost that first round, I came away from it thinking you kind of got to watch him down there too. Okay. And do you think that our willingness to pro- proclaim something luck is just entirely based on what we think about Uriah Hall? Because like same, the same, this almost same thing happened to Anderson Silva, right? Against Chael Sonnen, second fight. Well, first fight, he got dominated for the whole damn thing and then caught a triangle choke with like two minutes left or something like that. Was that luck? Was that triangle? Was that a lucky triangle? Well, you're saying that we're, what, not allowed to take into account everything we know about these fighters going in? Because, you know, obviously we're building on the, the context that we know. Right. And context and reputation are both important. But, but I'm just saying that, like, if we're going to th- designate one technique luck, it's, that seems like it's entirely based on, on resume coming in, right? Like nobody thought it was luck in the second Anderson Silva fight when he lost the first round to Chael Sonnen and then Chael Sonnen came out, I believe, in the second round and fell down trying to throw back a spinning fist. back yeah. fist and Anderson Silva was like, oh, look at this giant fish that just jumped into my <laughs> net. I guess I will put this in the boat and take it home for dinner. True. Like, yeah. We didn't call that luck. No. Well, and I think a lot of it has to do with this being by far the biggest win of Uriah Hall's career. And I, again, I'm not saying that I think it was just a lucky kick pulled out of nowhere. I think he he knew what he was doing there and came in there with that as part of his plan. I also think, in a way, while it's not a lucky win, he is lucky that it worked out so well. Yeah. How about that? I think they were basically on the same page on that. I don't know why we... Belabored well, at least point we quite, spent six minutes on it. so much. Uh, the second question this week comes to us from Justin Bottomer. He writes, Rich Franklin officially announced his retirement today, and I was thinking back on his career. As I was thinking back on his career, I started to panic. Ace always struck me as the exception to the rule. A great top-tier fighter who never yelled, let him bang, bro. Never got in a shoving match at a weigh-in. Never had to be reprimanded by the brass. He always struck me as a good dude who just also happened to be a killer in the ring. Am I remembering it right? And if so, is the other Randy Couture the last of the true gentleman fighters? So, Ben, as you know, as I'm sure a lot of our listeners know, uh, Rich Franklin, who hasn't fought since November 2012 anyway, uh, officially announced his retirement today, uh, either on social media or on the, the MMA Fortnite. 
One of those two? No, I believe it was he wrote something on whatever that website oh, is that Derek Tribune. Jeter created. Yeah. yeah. Quote, unquote, wrote something on the website Derek Jeter, quote, unquote, created. <laughs> hey, if you want to tell me that somebody actually wrote his own retirement announcement, I'd believe it about Rich Franklin. No, yeah, you're right. Rich Franklin, uh, always regarded as kind of a, of a heady fighter. Do you think that people who came in for the ultimate fighter era, the tough noobs, I guess you would say, and who existed entirely up until very recently in this world where Anderson Silva was the dominant middleweight champion? Like, did those people just miss Rich Franklin? Do they understand? how important Rich Franklin was at one time to this sport. And if, if the answer is yes, like, does that make you feel a little bad for Rich Franklin? You know, uh, the tough noobs aspect of the question is interesting because if you remember his big showcase in the UFC was fighting on that ultimate fighter one finale when he got to go in there and beat Ken Shamrock. And what right. was clearly the fight to say, Hey, everybody look at this guy, Rich Franklin, isn't he something? Uh, and, a little bit overshadowed there by the Forrest Griffin Stephen Bonner fight that would take place, but uh, I think to a lot to it, it depends on your generation of tough noob. If you were right there in the beginning, the OG tough noob days, which now would make you a tough savvy vet, I guess, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, then I think you remember you or at least associate Rich Franklin with a certain era, certain like climbing out of the the dark ages into something resembling the modern age uh, kind of fighter. And he he did seem to be that one of those first guys where if you needed somebody to go on MSNBC or something and defend MMA uh, in a, a panel talk show kind of deal where like the bottom ticker of the screen is going to be, is MMA too barbaric? Send Rich Franklin. Right. By all fucking means, send Rich Franklin. And I think that he was important to the sport in that way as well as just, you know, the guy could straight up fight. I mean, everybody's going to remember those... Losses, giving up the belt to Anderson Silva and failing to get it back, but shit, that was Anderson Silva. He's probably the, the greatest fighter, uh, definitely of that generation, if not all generations so far. So, I don't know. I, it, talking to Rich Franklin, I always got the sense that he still felt like his career had been a little bit of a letdown because of that, because, you know, he had the belt, lost it to Anderson, Anderson Silva, couldn't get it back, and then spent the last remaining years of his career kind of knocking around, looking for one interesting fight after another at whatever weight against whoever and could kind of see that he wasn't, that he didn't have the time left to get back to the title. Uh, and it seemed like he always regarded that as more of a failure than I think many of us regarded it as. Yeah. That seems like he would be awfully hard on himself to regard his career. Would, as would that a surprise you? I mean, no, it wouldn't at all. I mean, like I think that probably fits right into his mentality. Uh, he has a Ted talk, doesn't he? Or like yeah. some kind of a version of a Ted talk he about does. kind of on that, that subject. Uh, here's a blast from the past though. Do you remember that pre Anderson Silva back in like Oh five Oh six, the undercurrent or at least opinion that, uh, Rich Franklin was being protected from Matt Lindland. Do you remember oh, that? That's like that's, right. yes. that's about as old school of a like UFC rumor slash uh, like unfounded opinion, but the kind of thing that seemed to be true at the time. That's like, that might be the perfect example yeah. of that era. That's a rumor of that era. That's a, that's a deep cut. You know, that's what that is right there. That is a deep cut. Uh, anything else you want to say about Rich Franklin? No, just that uh, I agree in general that he always seemed like a good dude yeah. and never was really attached to 
any huge scandal or anything. You never would hear anybody. You know, there's some fighters where even if their their public persona is good dude behind behind the scenes, you hear a lot of talk and accusations and and stuff thrown at them, whether rightly or wrongly. And Rich Franklin never really had any of that. So kudos to him for that. Next question is from Enoch Santiago. He writes, Dana White looking for a fight. I stumbled upon this on Fight Pass. Very interesting idea. Questionable production. But man, I feel like this idea better developed. Could replace tough. Thoughts on this, please. And thank you. Uh, so obviously Enoch Santiago is referencing the uh, Fight Pass only Dana White new reality program, which is called Looking for a Fight, which is basically about Big D, Nick the Tooth, and Matt Sarah traveling the country in Dana White's private jet looking for unsigned hype, right? Looking for, for fighters that they could pluck out of obscurity and, uh, as he, I think he said, turn into the next Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Um, I watched, uh, you sent it to me this morning and I, right. I got through about five minutes of it to the point where Nick the Tooth licks Matt Sarah's head, possibly for the first time because I saw later on Twitter, People saying that maybe that happens again, uh, but that's where I bailed out. That's you as bailed far out as pretty I, quickly. That's as I don't far even as think I that's five it. minutes in. Well, you have to keep in mind I'm a dude who who like unfollowed Dana White on Twitter like 18 months ago because I'm done with the guy's gimmick, right? Well, he like, blocked me on Twitter, so I don't have to. Oh, worry you're right. About you don't anymore. have to worry about that. Uh, am I the only one who, when they kind of laid out what the premise of the show was, went, "Oh, that's the Tap Out Show. Right. You're and doing is- the Tap Out Show, except." With three different dudes, and you're not in a bus, which was frankly one of the most interesting parts about the Tap Out show. No, you're in a private plane now because we are moving up in the world, and you don't have Scrape, Punk Ass, and uh, who was the other guy from, from Tap Out? Mask. Mask, that's right. R.I.P. Dearly departed Mask. Sorry, Mask. And Punk Ass always got stuck driving the, the bus, if I recall. We all know he wanted to drive the bus all along. <laughs> he was totally the Warren G of the Tap Out crew. <laughs> well, but I mean, as soon as they lay out, here's what the show is, here's what we're going to do, I was like, okay, that's that's the Tap Out show. That's exactly what they did, pretty much. Yeah, so there are no new ideas, then, is what you're saying. Well, I also feel like, the, like this idea that uh, this idea better developed could replace Tough. I mean, in a lot of ways, it is because I thought tough was a really scraping. Dude building a pyramid out of dogs wearing top hats could replace tough <laughs> at this point. Would watch. Yes. Hashtag would watch. But the idea that, hey, we're going to go out there and find some fighters that nobody's heard of and, you know, sign them, I guess. Which would. which is the plot of the ultimate fighter also. Yeah, except that they're just gonna, you're going to pit those fighters against a bunch of other fighters right. uh, in a tournament. And I I thought one of the problems with the ultimate fighter was that we have at times started to feel like we are scraping the bottom of some division's barrels in order just to find people. Uh, and now you want to go out there to Lake Charles, Louisiana and find these dudes. And I'm just kind of wondering, okay, how many how many fighters can there be on planet Earth? And are we going to have to see them all in the UFC at some point? Yeah, they're just out there trolling for whoever gets to fight CM Punk, right? Like, that's what this show is about. You and I were talking before we went on the air about what the possible impetus for this show could have been. Like, why send UFC president Dana White out on the road to to go to these small-time MMA shows uh, 
for a fight pass show. For a fight pass show, which isn't, it's not even on television, no. right? So you would, uh, there's almost no return on the investment, you would think. Yeah, it's not like you're turning on people who are just flipping through the channels. Oh, what's this? Oh, a UFC thing. Maybe I'll check out this UFC stuff on set. No, it's already the most hardcore people. And you would think that the UFC president probably has a lot of other stuff to do. At least you'd hope that he has a bunch of other stuff to do other than be a reality TV star. But I, I guess not. So I floated the idea that they were just trying to get him out of the office. That maybe Larry Epstein and Lorenzo Fertitta had a meeting where they were like, you know what? Let's just. I don't know if Larry Epstein would be involved in that these days anymore so much. But uh... Lorenzo needed a place to put his new total gym fitness. And he's like, I'm going to put it in Dana's office. Maybe they're planning the road. a surprise party for when he comes back. Did <laughs> okay. you ever think about that? That would be awesome. I hope that that, that, that is the case. The whole and thing not is just that a ruse. With a class action lawsuit pending, uh, they decided that the backwaters of Louisiana was the best place for Dana White right now. <laughs> Next question this week comes from Jeff of Atlanta. He writes, the bad news is Dana White has fallen off his motorcycle while not wearing a helmet and has sustained a nasty concussion and tore his favorite shirt that celebrates a convicted rapist boxer. The good news is, in his weary state, he has decided to answer a question from each host of the wildly popular co-main event podcast with complete honesty and without any promotional spin or unnecessary profanity. He also promises not to call you a goof or make fun of your Twitter profile. This is a good question. Uh, so what question do you have to ask the UFC president when he is in his most honest state? Jeff of Atlanta has really studied the form when it comes to Dana White, hasn't he? Yeah, he uh, he crushed this one. Let's just say it. Okay. He gets the listener mail of the week award. <laughs> and I know my question. I already know what it is. Yeah, by the way, not an actual award. No. Uh, let's hear your question. Okay, then. my question would be, what's the split? Damn it, that was my question. Well, that's the question, right? God that is, damn you. That's the only question. That's what's the, the revenue If you had split? one question, what's the revenue split between UFC ownership and fighters? Because that's the holy grail question. That's the question that the, the, uh, the UFC is currently in court in Nevada busting out some kind of ostentatiously bald-faced legal documents to try to protect. I believe they said in a legal document filed when they tried to delay the discovery during this class action lawsuit that they felt it would put them at a competitive disadvantage if the people that they are negotiating with had that information. They said it would put them at a at a contractual disadvantage. Weird to how which other I said, pro sports... no fucking shit, dude. <laughs> Weird how other pro sports seem to deal with that issue just fine. You know? Uh, and here's the thing, too. I... I've been working on this story that uh, we'll probably roll out sometime this week, uh, kind of about the, the push for Fighters Association and all the elements that go along with that. And one of the things, talking to people on the management side of the business especially, everybody just says, what we want more than anything is transparency, a little more transparency, to kind of know some of that stuff. How much money are you taking in? Where is it going? Right. Well, I mean, you can't even really start to have a, uh, an informed negotiation because nobody knows what the truth is. Nobody knows. Everybody's guessing. And you hear just all these different numbers thrown out about uh, how much, you know, some people are like, oh, that's 90% is going to the UFC. 10% is finding its way to the fighters. And then you hear other people say, no, 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 it's, it's actually a lot more fair than that. But everybody's just kind of guessing or trying to read the tea leaves on this and figure it out and nobody really knows and that is such a, a pivotal uh, question and it's one of the things too that some people have floated out like hey if you want to 
Torpedo talks of an association, one thing you can do is kind of get out in front and do some of this stuff yourself. Uh, and one of the things you could do would be to, to open up the books voluntarily a little bit and let people see the split. And why wouldn't you do it? Well, one reason you might not do it is because you think once they saw that number, they would become enraged. Right. Like it's way worse than they even suspect. Right. Uh, yeah. And instead of doing that, they're fighting tooth and nail right now in Nevada to try to keep that stuff private. Uh, and in fact, I think we've talked about it before on the show, but we, we've already said that there are aspects of the class action lawsuit that I feel like are going to be very hard to prove. But I think the biggest benefit of the clash action lawsuit is that the UFC could be compelled to turn over a lot of its financial information on discovery uh, and or just settle and recognize a fighters union if it feels like that information is so would be so damaging, which, again, just you got to think about that for a second. A company that tells you if its employees knew its financial information, if that feel it feels like that would be professionally damaging to the company. Just let that sink in for a while. Let's all just take a uh, moment. That it, that it might settle the lawsuit to try to keep that from, from coming out. But circling back, Jeff of Atlanta, awesome question. Good work, Jeff. One more question this week from Teresa H. She writes, there have been whispered that whispers that Ben Henderson will be fighting the last fight on his contract in Korea. I've also heard on the MMA Insiders podcast that he may be disgruntled with Zufa Brass. As such, do you think he's a good candidate to jump over to Bellator, or do you think the UFC will open its wallet to keep the smooth one in the fold, discuss? Uh, so yeah, this, this, this plot line has been floating around for a while now that Ben Henderson, uh, either isn't happy or doesn't think that they can come to a financial arrangement. Um, and is basically fighting out his contract a la uh, Phil Davis and and then might look to change organizations, uh, which would be a hell of a pickup for Bellator if you could get him. Because then if you got Phil Davis and Ben Henderson, uh, you know, you could make the case that, that the wheels were starting to turn over there with a little momentum for Bellator. Yeah. And again, it's an, we talked about this, I think, last week, maybe the that the whole idea of guys fighting out their contract to actually kind of test their worth on something resembling a free agent market is pretty rare and seems like it's becoming a little more common. And I've heard people say that, hey, Bellator has kind of put the word out that we want to compete. We're willing to to negotiate and, and uh, throw some money out there for some of these guys if you want to take that chance. But again, it's also one of those things where if you essentially tell the UFC, no, I'm going to fight out my contract and see – uh, what I can get out there, then, you know, you end up fighting Tiago Alves, uh, in a, what could be a pretty tough fight on your way out the door, right. that kind of stuff. Which is another thing, like we just got done talking about a, the possibility of a fighters association and, and this idea that, that fighters would face matchmaking retribution if they want to, if they let it know, be known that they're going to go out and, and, you know, try to get a competitive offer from someone else. Like the UFC can flex that muscle now, but couldn't really flex it that effectively if everyone decided to do that in mass, which, you know, could be another benefit of some kind of collective action. Uh, but specifically in talking about Benson Henderson, that, yeah, that's been a thing that's been, uh, <clears throat> out there for a long time. And so I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Ben Henderson cross the aisle after his next fight is out. But you also never know how these things are going to go. They might they might pony up the dough to, to try to keep the guy. Well, and hey, if he goes out there and he beats Thiago Alves uh, on what I I mean, that's a fight pass card, is it not? The the fight night seventy nine. They still do fight pass cards. I don't know. Maybe it's not. Yeah. Well, well let's uh, just say yes. Okay. Well, uh, if he goes out there and he beats Thiago Alves, then you know your former lightweight champion has just knocked off uh, 
couple good guys in Brandon Thatch and uh, Tiago Alves. I would think you got to try to negotiate to keep that guy if you can, right? I mean, why why aren't you willing to pay that guy some money to stick around? Because, man, that, that he starts to look like a pretty good pickup uh, with a lot of momentum right around there. But And then that's how you get paid if you're a fighter. That's how you can start to get some real serious money. Like, look what Eddie Alvarez uh, went through, you know, trying to move over from Bellator to the UFC. That's when you can really stand to get some good money rather than, you know, when you still have two fights or one fight left on your deal and the UFC coming to you and saying, you know, here's what we think you're worth, and you just say, okay, uh, without uh, balancing that against what anybody else thinks you're worth. So hopefully he does get paid one way or another. I don't particularly care where he ends up, but uh, Benson Henderson's put the work in. He deserves uh, a payday. No uh, broadcast information, it appears, on the on the official poster of Fight Night Soul, which leads me to believe probably a Fight Pass event. That's your source? You just look at the poster, huh? It was the best I could do at the moment while you were over there blabbing. Well, you know what I do? You know what I do in situations like this, Chad? What are you going to do? I go to the MMA Junkies events page uh, where you can look at upcoming events, and it'll tell you the broadcast information. And I just did it while you were blabbing. It is a USC Fight Pass card from Seoul, South Korea. Good. November 28th. I'm glad we set that up so you could get that plug in there. MMAJunkie.com. That's MMAJunkie.com. That's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question or a comment or a concern that you would like to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do that. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. They just get better and better. Uh, it catches you up on the news and notes that we missed from Tuesday until Friday when we're not recording the podcast. Uh, it's fun. It's short. doesn't take up a lot of your time. You can unsubscribe if you don't like it. Uh, we think you will like it to catch you up on, on everything that's happening in the MMA world in kind of a humorous way. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the national academy of sports medicine the national academy of sports medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love nasm trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives it doesn't get any better. NASM guarantees you'll land a job within 60 days of earning your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them where they can go on the internet to find the offer. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at MyUSATrainer.com. That's MyUSATrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See MyUSATrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, as we talked about last week, when you think... Josh Barnett versus Roy Nelson in the main event of a UFC fight night from the Saitama Super Arena in Japan. You don't necessarily think that it's going to be the most relevant thing out there, but I think you're also kind of accepting of it. Like, it seems like a fun uh, pairing to have a couple of old war horses go out there and put on a show. And in that regard, I feel like, anyway, Josh Barnett and Roy Nelson kind of came through for us. I felt like they're... Uh, 
Their five round main event was uh, at least better than I expected. Uh, compelling, uh, you know, several twists and turns with with uh, in the strategy department. Uh, Josh Barnett fought Southpaw a lot of the fight, trying to mitigate Roy Nelson's uh, big right hand. Roy Nelson came out shooting for takedowns. So uh, and the arena was quiet enough that we could hear Eric Paulson just yelling out. Just hold him, Josh. Just hold him. He can't do anything there. Right. Which is a lot of fun. Not to mention, the, as we said in the intro, the, the huffing and puffing from the hot uh, cage-side mics. Uh, Josh Barnett ends up getting the win. Uh, unanimous decision, 50-45 on one card and then 48-47 on the other two. Uh, I kind of thought this fight was a little bit closer than it seemed like most of the other people did on, on social media just because I thought Roy Nelson did some good work early going. Uh, with the with his takedowns and and at least had top position, got his riding time in. Uh, did <laughs> really? You, did, that's what that's what you're looking for. Did Judge you Chad uh, Dundas. did you see this as a clean sweep for Josh Barnett or or uh, did you I, think it was more competitive than you expected? Well, if he won any round, I guess it would have to be on takedowns. But then he never really managed to do much with the takedowns, and he got outlanded uh, pretty significantly in every round. Some rounds more so than others. I don't really see what round he wins there. I thought he won the first and the third. Really? Yeah. You're wrong. Doesn't matter, though. Uh, I think that the thing I was really surprised at with, well, for one thing, not surprising that Roy Nelson can take a hell of a beating, although starting to get a little worrisome at his age, the number of hell of a beating nights he's had out there. I seem to recall when he fought uh, Stipe Miocic and... Stipe. Stipe! Congratulations on the engagement, by the way, for Stipe Miocic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How about that? Uh, I think Dana White came to the press conference after that one and kind of didn't seem to know what to make of it when he remarked that Roy Nelson had set the record for the number of significant strikes absorbed without being knocked down as like a new UFC record that he had now set. he's broken his own record. Well, this or is a different. This record. is a this think, is an even more. I think this one is just kind of overall impressive record. Yeah, depending on what side of the coin you're on. Well, yeah, and see, that's the thing too is Roy Nelson in his late 30s now has had a number of these fights where the kind of amazing thing about it is how much abuse he has taken and still been there. I mean, it's cool for a while, and then it starts to worry you, does it not? Yeah, I suppose it does. What is he, 39 years old now? And uh, just the way that he fights, I guess, uh, puts him in harm's way to to accept a lot of that a lot of that damage. And the kind of like if you were going to look for the shittiest part for Roy Nelson in this fight, even though the outcome is probably a shitty thing, number one, but like. He fought a decent fight in this fight. Like, kind of, I saw people who know more about technical analysis than I do on on social media talking about how this might have been Roy Nelson's most tactical, impressive, and, like, smart fight of his UFC career. Uh, and he still gets beat by Josh Barnett. So, now that you're, what, he's one in five in his last six fights, I believe. I assume he has essentially lifetime UFC employment if he wants it since the UFC's policy must be at this point to keep as much talent away from its competitors uh, a- a- as possible. Uh, but, but yeah, you do wonder how long Roy Nelson wants to do this. And, you know, if anything, maybe you're also worried by the fact that he is not a guy, despite the fact that he gave some lip service to the, the title picture previous to this fight, he doesn't seem like a dude who's motivated around championships. He seems like a guy who is... Uh, motivated around money and, you know, going out there and having fights, 
which is the kind of thing that I feel like could get you in trouble if you're a guy like Roy Nelson, and you do keep doing this for too long. Well, the thing that I think might get you in trouble is he's not the kind of dude who is going out there and just getting cold clocked and knocked out. Those are the guys where it's, it stands out to us and we start to worry about what they might be doing to their brains. I mean, that was the thing with Chuck Liddell, right? Was the big red flag was he was getting hit with shots that he previously in his career would have walked through. And then now he's getting knocked cold by them. And that was the thing that kind of let everybody know, uh Oh, there's a problem here. We should pressure him to stop doing this. And with Roy Nelson, it's kind of the opposite. He still can take a tremendous beat. I mean, Mark Hunt managed to knock him out, but shit, that was Mark Hunt. And it was by far the exception rather than the rule when it comes to Roy Nelson's fights. So I think that it can be deceiving. He can go out there and he can take a beating for five rounds, three rounds. In the process, take a lot more punches and might not jump out at you as one huge brain-rattling blow, but those still add up. I mean, that's one of the big things we've learned about brain trauma as we, uh, people continue to research it is that it's not just the knockout blows. It's all the little stuff, too. And I think that people will look at him and say, oh, well, he's fine. Look, he, he went the distance in this one. And he's still He still seems okay. And maybe not think about the way that punishment is adding up. Let's talk about Josh Barnett a little bit since he won. Uh, this, like we said, was a fight that didn't seem to be particularly uh, associated with the title picture. He, you know, for Fabricio Verdum, your new champion is, we think, on the shelf until next year. And then he's going to have an, an immediate rematch with Cain Velasquez, we think. Uh, but there's still a, a gaggle of contenders in front of Josh Barnett. He moved up one spot in the official UFC rankings from nine to eight. He's another guy who doesn't seem like he is motivated around titles. Uh, he doesn't seem like a guy who's going to be the champion at any point. But at the same time, coming out of this this win, which I thought was a good, well-thought-out, you know, good game-planned win for Josh Barnett, it also strikes me that just considering the the long and the tooth nature of the heavyweight division, it seems like Josh Barnett is another guy who's going to be able to keep doing this as long as he wants to. And while he's not going to be uh, champion, he's he's never going to be short on... on uh, viable options, right? Because you got guys like Andre Arlovsky, Mark Hunt, Alistair Overeem even, uh, Bigfoot Silva still floating around the division. Uh, you could get yourself into a senior tour type situation. Oh, yeah. where, where You could hardly get yourself out of a senior tour situation. <laughs> I guess that's a good point where, you know, Josh Barnett, who who's a little bit younger than Roy Nelson, but still not young for a fighter, uh, he could, he could kind of do the war master thing as long as he wants. And I think like everybody would be cool with that which is which is a, a good place for him to be in as a commodity, but maybe a not not a great place if you're if you're thinking about people's health. Well, I guess I wonder how much does he want to do it because it's almost it was almost two years between the Travis Brown fight uh, and this one. You can understand him maybe wanting to take some time after that one since it was a kind of a bad knockout loss. Uh, and during those two years, it seemed like he was not terribly eager to jump back in there so now you wonder what where's his head at as far as what he wants out of his career one of the things that he's said for years is that he has other revenue streams so it's not like he necessarily has to fight just to keep the lights on which is always a good sign uh and you know he's a smart guy i think he could do a lot of other different things if he wants to and so you do just wonder okay now it seems like decision time doesn't it that you're you're in your mid 30s as Josh Barnett. It's the it's a good time to be a UFC heavyweight in your mid 30s coming off a win. You know it wouldn't be out of the question for him to go fight somebody like Andre Arlovski or something and win. And then boom, you could be right back there on the title picture. Is that what you want? 
Right. Well, and if anything, that 637 day layoff, uh, we talked about that last week. You said you felt like maybe he was, he was even less, uh, interested now than he was a few years ago in, in fighting, but he came into this fight in tremendous shape. Uh, certainly weighed in light. He was out there looking like a big light heavyweight, honestly, 239, about 15 pounds less than, than he weighed in for his previous two UFC fights. He talked a lot about how hard he trained. Um, so I feel like the end result makes him feel a little bit more committed, honestly. Uh, we'll have to see what he does. Obviously, if he goes out and takes another two-year break, then we're probably looking at him being near the end of the road. But just because of the 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 number of options that I think he'll have after we get through these, these fights that are currently on the books. Uh, and he had a good fight against Roy Nelson appeared to be in great shape. I feel like, uh, I got the impression we'll see Barnett back out there sooner rather than later, at least by his own standards, which are, you know, it wouldn't be hard to get over that bar of activity that Barnett has set recently. So we'll see what happens to him. Let's do, uh, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we will move on to round number two. What's your are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, I don't know if you caught this during the UFC Fight Night 75 broadcast um, in between the endless commercials for Bur- Burger King chicken fries, um, which kind of bizarrely forced you to imagine a chicken and french fries copulating, uh, which I think is maybe a, a questionable move on the advertiser's part. There was an ad for basically the UFC's Reebok stuff. Did you see that one? Yes. Yeah, I've seen that. Did you see the part in the ad where a bunch of fight fans are at what appears to be a sports bar cheering on their favorite fighter or whatever? They're watching the fights and there are like people in the crowd wearing the Reebok fight kit shirt. You know, the one that people are forced to walk out in. I believe this one was the the black with blue lettering and white sleeve kind of one. Did you see that part? Uh, I got to be honest with you. I didn't pay close enough attention. Well, I must highlight that one and say, one, are you fucking kidding me? That's not happening. People are not out there paying like 70 or 80 bucks or whatever the thing so they can wear it uh, to the bar to go watch it at Buffalo Wild Wings. Also, do you know whose uh, fight kit shirt they were wearing? Who's? Nobody fucking knows, Chad, because they all look the same. Are you fucking kidding me? You're going to act like people are out there at Buffalo Wild Wings or at your local Hooters in their $80 fight kit shirt? You're not fooling anybody. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Josh Barnett didn't even warm up in his Reebok fight gear. Saw some photo backstage photos. He's he's wearing one of his sleeveless tees. See, of course he is. I so think, people are wearing it to the bars, but UFC fighters aren't even wearing it to warm up. I think the way for UFC fighters to carry this stuff, if they really want to make a statement, is to treat it like they're a 15-year-old boy being dragged to church and like on Easter Sunday and their mother made them put on a suit. And just to cultivate that like facial expression of just like, I hate what's going on right now, oh, but I God. have no choice. Ben, numerous are you fucking kidding me's to be handed out after Mizuto, Hirota, and Taruto Ishihara fought to a split draw in the final of something called Road to UFC Japan. First off, and are you fucking kidding me to the UFC for staging a six fight main card for this event that included the finale of a featherweight tournament that nobody knew besides the five people who are browsing the original programming on the fightpass.com. Second of all, a positive are you fucking kidding me to Hirota and Ishihara for going out there and having an awesome little fight. Fucking kidding me. Negative are you fucking kidding me to the decisions that they made with their hair. Fucking kidding me. 
Negative, are you fucking kidding me? Also, because of the split draw that got announced and apparently nobody in the building knew what the fuck to do. Positive, are you fucking kidding me? That they didn't make these dudes come out and fight an extra round on an event that was already way the hell too long. Fucking kidding. And last but not least, though, major, 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 are you fucking kidding me for the look on the referee's face and the unbelievably half-hearted way with which he raised both guys' arms at the same time as if to say... Well, fuck this. <laughs> I mean, this dude was out there looking like the biggest takeaway from this fight was that everybody wasted his motherfucking time, right? <laughs> I love his – he turns around to look at Bruce Buffer after he announces the draw, and Buffer gives him a shrug like, what do you want from me? Right, but Bruce Buffer, he's like the, the speaker of the house. Like if Dana White, <laughs> Lorenzo Fertitta both die in a plane crash, I believe Bruce Buffer is the president of the UFC. Yeah, the, sure. The order of succession, yeah. right? Uh-huh. It's like I'm that, sure that's it's how like it a Tom Clancy novel where uh Jack Ryan becomes president because everybody else dies. Wow. You just kind of embarrassed yourself with your knowledge of Tom Clancy nope. novels. Nope, not embarrassed at all. I'm embarrassed. I've not for read you. said novel, but I believe that that's the plot. I don't believe you. Anyway, are you fucking kidding me, ref? As for right now, we're going to go ahead and move on to round number 2. Chad, you know how when you and I are out at the club and nope, people, you've already lost me, but people were coming continue. up to us asking, Chad and Ben, how you stay so fly, fresh to death. It does happen all the time. You know what answer I give them? What answer? Fulton and Rourke, my man. A men's grooming and fragrance company that creates products specifically for the way guys operate and is bringing to you round number two today on the co-main event podcast. In addition to using the highest quality ingredients available, each of their products is designed for the ways men get ready. They're travel-friendly, easy for being on the go, and extremely effective. Chad, their solid colognes, which use a wax base instead of an alcohol spray, have been featured in GQ, Details, and Fast Company. That's right. Everybody knows that I have their hand-milled soap in my shower right now. Everybody knows that. I love it. It's a blend of Moroccan let red clay, eucalyptus, sage, and black spruce oils. It smells great and leaves your skin feeling clean and fresh. I also have the ultra-slick no-foam shaving cream, and it's it's probably the best shaving cream I've ever owned. It's it's the kind of shaving cream that you will notice that it is better better than other shaving cream. Well, I'm, I'll be interested to see that ranking of shaving creams uh, historically. There's for no you. ranking. It's Fulton and Rourke number one, and then everybody else. In fact, Ben, we have a listener uh, uh, who wrote in Jeff of Atlanta. He won the the fictitious award this week for best <laughs> email of the week. He says at the end of his email, "P.S. Try the Fulton and Rourke solid cologne tie B." It's delightful. Oh. So there you go. Well, and he's clearly a man of taste if he won the award that does not exist for this week. That's right. <laughs> uh, but for everyone else, I know you already know this, but Fulton and Rourke has a special deal just for CME podcast listeners. If you go to FultonandRourke.com, you can save 15% off your total purchase by entering the coupon code DISCOURSE at checkout. Well, Ben, I don't know exactly what we want to make out of this Vitor Belfort news that came out. Uh, last week, a report from veteran MMA reporter Josh Gross that, that was published on Deadspin, uh, basically with a smoking gun 
of a, a PDF report from a Las Vegas anti-aging clinic, followed up by some uh, emails sent out by UFC executives uh, that would indicate that about three weeks before he fought John Jones at UFC 152 in September of 2012, uh, Vitor Belfort uh, underwent a blood test that revealed that he had, surprise, surprise, elevated levels of testosterone. And of course, uh, what is implied by the story, by the, 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 the facts that we know is that the UFC was aware of that and they let Vitor go ahead and fight John Jones anyway. Um, it's the kind of thing that I don't know that it terribly affects Vitor Belfort's reputation. Which since, is already in tatters. Since that was already ruined. Uh, but this seems like kind of a damning report from the UFC's perspective. Because as you know, all along they told us that, uh, they, they were monitoring Vitor Belfort to make sure that he wasn't using testosterone replacement therapy to gain an unfair advantage. Uh, and Josh Gross's report seems to fly 180 degrees in the face of that claim. Well, that's what they claimed later after we finally found out that he was using testosterone replacement therapy. What they were saying at this time was nothing. As you recall, uh, questions about whether anyone had received a, a TUE uh, for that event in Toronto. Uh, we didn't get any good answers there. Uh, we found out one person had a TUE. They released after the event, but that person was not named. That person has been named now. Yeah. Right? That person was Vitor Belfort. And certainly, you know, John Jones didn't know going into this fight that, uh, at least from all indications, that uh, Vitor Belfort uh, was on TRT. And certainly didn't know that the UFC had done a little checkup on him and found that he was higher than he should have been and decided to let him fight anyway. Which makes you wonder, why do that test to check on him? Right. If you're if you're not going to do anything about it when he's high, where you're just waiting for him to be like insanely high or something before you would do something about it. And this, uh, though, we were talking about this privately after this news kind of broke out. Uh, and one thing that I think we can agree on if we're going to cut the UFC a little bit of slack is if we think about what was going on at that time, right? They had just canceled UFC 151 when Dan Henderson got hurt. John Jones would not accept Chael Sonnen as an extremely late replacement. Uh, so they canceled it, got out there, called John Jones and Greg Jackson sport killers. They murdered UFC 151. And then it's like eight days later or something, uh, you know, the next day, I think after they had announced that they were canceling it, they got Vitor Belfort in there after Leota Machida had turned down the fight against John Jones. And then there you are, like eight days later, about three weeks before the fight itself, and you realize, oh shit, we got a problem with Vitor. And they would have had to have a real commitment to ethics at that point. Uh, to yank Vitor Belfort and cr make a bad situation much worse. Right. When you when you keep the timeline in mind, it becomes, I think, pretty understandable why the UFC would want to keep Vitor Belfort in this fight because, as you said, it all happened really fast. It all happened within the course of about a week. In fact, uh, the the I believe the press press release that they sent out on October twenty third or twenty or I'm sorry, August twenty third or twenty fourth, announcing the cancellation of UFC one fifty one was then immediately updated on the website to include Vitor Belfort fighting John Jones at UFC 152. So essentially, they did both things in the same press release, which just reinforces the fact that we've we've often wondered about on the podcast before that the UFC kind of flies by the seat of its pants. It likes to act very quickly and decisively in situations like this. And I think at the time, we even wondered why 
Vitor Belfort, right? The, yeah. The, he seemed like an odd choice. He was a middleweight for one thing. Right. Yeah. And, and so it just seemed like it, it acted very fast to put him into this fight because it felt like it needed to get a John Jones fight on the books or something. Uh, and then, like you said, just over a week later, he takes this test and, and two or three days later, the emails are dated that the UFC accidentally emailed out his test results of, of having elevated levels of testosterone, uh, and then tried to basically call it back. Called that email back with a series of other emails where they threatened people uh, with legal action if that information ever became public. So you which of course of, it did. Which, which uh, yeah, it's kind of astounding that it took this long, but uh, but of course it did. Uh, and so you understand that that they were kind of between a rock and a hard place. There was a big deal back in those days that they had canceled UFC 151, and you could understand why they wouldn't want to pull someone out of a John Jones fight eight days later and three weeks before the next scheduled event at UFC 152. At the same time, though, like you said, you had to have known when that email went out to 29 people in the MMA community, well, this is going to come out at some point. And that makes the decision to keep Vitor Belfort in a light heavyweight title fight totally bizarre. Yeah, well, also, like you said, the while it's somewhat understandable, given everything that was going on, why the UFC made that choice, it's also... The exact reason why the promoter shouldn't be in that position. Right. Because it's eventually. It's a textbook example. Yes. In fact. Yeah. It's exactly what many of us were saying would, would happen eventually. And the UFC did exactly the thing that it had assured us that it would not do in that situation, which is basically keep somebody's secret for them, cover it up just to keep the fight together. Uh, and there it is. The first time that we know of that you're confronted with that problem, you do exactly what you're not supposed to do. Uh, but then here's where I don't understand the UFC's complete non-response ever since. Because as I was telling you, uh, when I was writing a, a column about it after this report came out, and I emailed the UFC to just be like, hey, do you guys have a, a comment on this thing? Quickest no comment I've ever received from the UFC. Like emailed it off and then went back to my column and saw the little one pop up in my email inbox and thought, well, that can't be them already responding. They never respond this quickly. As quickly as they could hit send on it, no thanks, not commenting on this one, which I think is a, the wrong move here. I think that if you're the UFC, the thing to do here, for one thing, this is big enough. It was on Deadspin. Like you said, there's smoking gun documentation in hand. You're not just going to stay quiet on this one and have everybody forget. Uh, I think there was there was an out here. You could have replied or put out an official statement on this one to say, you know what? We screwed up in that instance, um, and we have since changed, like taken ourselves out of that position. So we realized we never should have been doing it in the first place. This is why we hired USADA. We put all this stuff in somebody else's hands. We never should have been doing it in the first place. We made a mistake in this instance. Um, we learned from it. We regret that mistake. Apologize to everybody involved, whatever. And now we are put ourselves in a position to make sure that that kind of thing won't ever happen again. And you could actually get a little bit of attaboy points in a way. You could, you could draw, you could use this like scandal to draw attention to something good you have done, uh, in getting an anti-doping agency involved. And yet they don't do that. Instead, they just think like, all right, code of silence, circle up the wagons and wait for it all to blow over. Yeah, they got back to you fast on that no comment, especially considering they probably sent it to the wrong person the first Ooh, time they tried. I see what so, you did there. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's going to get real interesting too, Ben. I agree with you. And they have Vitor Belfort on the books for a fight against Dan Henderson, November seventh, UFC Fight Night seventy seven. So not really that far out in the future. 
uh, it seems like it would have to blow over in kind of a uh, an unthinkable manner for them not to face a bunch of questions leading up to that event uh, a little over a month from now about, uh, you know, how all this was handled back at the time of UFC 152. Like, this is kind of the perfect fight for Belfort to tumble into after this revelation, though, because when you go up against Dan Henderson, I feel like this is one where people are going to kind of overlook the previous TRT uh, use slash abuse because both dudes were on it. So they're like, if any, if you could make a fight where you're like, okay, Vitor Belfort could get a pass for this one, you'd want to <laughs> put him out there against Dan Henderson. Yeah. Well, also, this is going to be another one of those fights where everybody's going to be very interested to see what Vitor Belfort looks like when he pops the top off at the weigh-in and gets up on the scale because that seems to have throughout his career his physique tells a lot of right. different stories. It's, it's interesting to note that if you remember, UFC 152 was the one where he showed up to fight John Jones where everyone was like, oh, okay, this is bullshit, right? Because he looked <laughs> yes, like a He-Man yeah. action figure. And then, no, he, and, they, he even, and in fact, Dana White seemed kind of pissed yeah, off at him. He, they he, have a very hot and cold relationship. And leading up to 152, you remember, Dana White seemed kind of upset. Now well, we know why. You know, and that's the thing, too. Is I remember him after that event talking – like his stance on TRT seemed to change uh, after that event somewhat. Because in August of 2012, you know, he's on, uh, I think, Fox Sports talking about how TRT is 100% legal. It's great. It's, you know, medical science. It's 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 totally good thing. I, I love it. Uh, and then a few months later, he's – out there talking in vague terms. Uh, and I remember him at a post-fight press conference not too long after that talking about how um, some of these guys are abusing it and they're showing up looking like bodybuilders and we need to keep an eye on those guys. And it seemed obvious then, it seems even more obvious now, that he was talking about Vitor. And you're right that you look at his physique in that fight and you think, holy shit, you were a middleweight. Now you look like a legit light heavyweight even though you took this fight on short notice. What gives, bro? And then he shows up to fight Chris Weidman in that last one and everybody's going... What are we doing with Vitor's scrawny little brother, Poindexter Belfort? How did he get in this fight? It's looking like somebody's in-shape dad. Uh, and we should just mention before we move on to round three, uh, he damn near beat John Jones in that fight and, in fact, injured his arm with uh, with an arm bar in the first round. And according to uh, Jones's agent, Malky Kawa, Jones is upset about that now that he knows what's going on. And we got more Jones stuff to talk about a little bit in round number three. So that's going to start right now. Ben, in classic co-main event podcast breaking news curse examples, John Jones is scheduled to be in an Albuquerque courtroom at 8.30 a.m. on Tuesday, the day after we record this podcast. We believe to enter a plea after he was charged with felony hit and run back in April. Um, it seems like his attorneys and, and prosecutors down there in Albuquerque have, have reached a resolution. They have to submit that to a judge and get it approved, obviously. So tomorrow we stand a good chance of finding out what punishment, uh, John Jones will receive in this criminal case. And then we think that his five months of legal limbo will be over. He'll still officially be under indefinite suspension by the UFC, at least for the time being. Uh, but it would seem like the road to his return will be paved 
just in time for UFC 192 this Saturday as the man he defeated in his last fight before that suspension, Daniel Cormier, uh, goes out there to defend his light heavyweight title against Alexander Gustafson. So I guess to open up this round, I'll just ask you, what do you think the odds are we see John Bones Jones in the house at UFC 192 in Houston this weekend? In H-Town? H-Town. You know, uh, I think, I guess what I wonder is, it, would that be a good thing right now? Because I feel like one of the most encouraging things about this John Jones dark period has been it gives you some hope that maybe he has taken, like this was all the wake-up call he needed, that he has taken it seriously, and that he's been off uh, addressing his issues. Uh, and if if it turns out that the court case thing gets settled, and then boom, he's right back in there, then I might start to wait to go. Wait a minute, was this all just bullshit? Was it all just like we had to wait until the legal issue was resolved? Now we can get back to like mocking people on Instagram or whatever. That might worry me a little bit. Well, I think maybe the thing to do would be let these two guys have their night, their special night uh, at UFC 192 in H Town, and then when we're all when we're set, we're ready, we know that everybody's where they need to be mentally. Then we start gearing up for Jones versus whoever. Well, you'll note that I did not ask you what would be the best thing <laughs> for John Jones, the human being. Uh, we know that he has returned to training. We know that uh, Dana White told us back in May, he was on the Jim Rome radio show, he said when John Jones gets his head straight, the first thing that he'll, the first fight he will have will be for the title. He's not going to have a warm-up fight. He'll come straight in and, and try to get the championship back. Uh, and obviously there's there are a lot of unknowns at this point. We don't know where his head is at, like you said. We don't know what his relationship is with the UFC at this point, because as we talked about in the last round, uh, it was already kind of strained after that UFC 151 cancellation. They really hung him out to dry. Uh, and in his absence, I don't think it's gotten any better, I think would be our assumption, since we just found out earlier this month that uh, the UFC may have allowed Vitor Belfort to go out there and fight him, even though he had elevated levels of testosterone three weeks before the fight. So we don't know what his relationship is like with the UFC, but we do know that, like we said earlier in the show, the UFC likes to act quickly and decisively. And I got to think that if there's a chance for the fight promoter to get John Jones back out there uh, and get him booked in a fight for the light heavyweight title, that it will take that opportunity, regardless of whether or not that, as you noted, is the right thing to do for John Jones, the man. Yeah. Well, let's talk a minute about uh, Daniel Cormier and your boy, Lusty Gusty, or Indeed, Tall Alex, as you like I've to call him heard now. One of these guys is incredibly tall, yeah. is what I've heard. Man, I guess the, I wonder if Alexander, Alexander Gustafson is getting sick of that shit yet. You do you think he was this sick of it by the time he showed up in the UFC? Like, if you're six foot four or six foot five, like Alexander Gustafson is, I assume you've spent your entire life with people walking up to you and asking you in Swedish, how tall are you, bro? <laughs> I don't know what the translation of that is, but no, like, it's actually it's one of those weird things where that's it's exactly the oh, same. It's just yeah. how tall are you, bro? Yeah, it's yeah. like croissant. So you got to think maybe uh, he was already suffering from a, a bit of of uh, hey big guy disease by the time he even showed up, and now every single fight that he has, it's all about him being tall and the other guy being short ish, or the other guy being in in the John Jones fight, uh, finally facing someone who around as tall as he is. And that that one, I think, we kind of got sick of there. And now we're just going to reboot it for the Daniel Cormier fight. Now, I think that, though, if we get past all that shit, this is a really, really interesting fight. Uh, a lot because I'm curious to see, for one thing, 
I, I think a lot of us are going to be one way or another looking at Gustafson's performance against Daniel Cormier and using it to kind of backtrack and see whether the rumor that John Jones just didn't train hard for Alexander Gustafson and that's why that was such a close fight holds any water. And I think if, if Cormier goes out there and wrecks Alexander Gustafson, I think a lot of people are going to look back on that, what they now regard as a incredible fight between Gustafson and Jones and be like, wait a minute, was that Jones half-assing it and still being pretty awesome? Uh, but if he goes out there and it, it seems like, you know, he's able to use, uh, surprising wrestling ability that he showed in the Jones fight, use that, that length and that reach, uh, and puts on a good performance against Daniel Cormier, win or lose, then I think then people might revise uh, their memories of the Jones fight in the other direction. Yeah, I think, you know, it, maybe even subconsciously, a lot of people are jumping to the conclusion that it's going to be Daniel Cormier against John Jones doing the damn thing again when Jones eventually returns. Uh, and that is to overlook this fight, which I think is probably a mistake. And like you said, especially in the wake of uh, Alexander Gustafson's loss to Anthony Johnson in January of this year, where he got run over in two minutes and 15 seconds. I think you're right. A lot of people want to see uh, how he fares against a guy like Daniel Cormier, whose only career loss uh, is to John Jones at UFC 182 and uh, seems to be the kind of guy who would have the skills to get inside that reach and, and take Alexander Gustafson down and, and, you know, mitigate uh, his, his height advantage. So yeah, I think you're right. It's an incredibly interesting fight. Uh, it's, it's, one that I think shapes up as a as a very apropos one for Daniel Cormier's second title defense, uh, and or I guess first title defense. He won the vacant title when he beat Anthony Johnson at UFC 187. So um, yeah, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a good fight. I don't know uh, who is the favorite or what the odds are like. Uh, Cormier is the favorite. Okay. Uh, the odds I just looked at them. Cormier is about a three to one favorite. Uh, Gustafson, you can get him at uh, you know plus 280, 250. Right about now. So what do you say? If you had 20 bucks you never wanted to see again, do you think Gustafson is worth it at that, that price? That's, I mean, that's, that's kind of compelling a, a return on your money. I don't necessarily know that I would pick Alexander Gustafson straight up in this fight if I was involved in some kind of company picks competition. I don't know that there's any self-respecting company that does that anymore. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, if you're going to get, th- get good three times your money back, you know what I always say? I love to chase those underdogs, man. That's why I don't bet. Yeah, good thing for you. Well, you know, the thing that I – when I talked to both these guys uh, for a story that we're putting together this week on it. And it's funny how the UFC light heavyweight title right now is in this position where Alexander Gustafson is going to sit over there and be like, this guy is not the real champion. Like, don't even throw the word undisputed in there when we all know what really happened here. And Daniel Cormier's uh, counter-argument to that is A – Hey, I didn't do anything wrong. It's Jones's fault why he doesn't have the belt anymore. And, and, you know, I just won the fight that they gave me and then they, they put this belt around my waist. And B, if Alexander Gustafson were to take this belt from me, he would wear it with the same pride that I wear it. Mm. Which I think, and it seems like one of those rare situations where everybody is making a good point. Gustafson is right that we all know that that's, you know, the person wearing the UFC light heavyweight championship belt at this point is not necessarily the best 205er on earth. Uh, but Cormier's right that, hey, what the hell else did you want him to do but go out there and win the fight? And shit, man, he can take a replica belt out of the closet right now and hand it to you, Chad. And you're going to, you're just going to act out of reflex, hold it over your head. Jump up on the table and shout champion of the world <laughs> yes. and then look for someone to carry me around. 
Uh, did you ask Alexander Gustafson if he grows weary of uh, the Hey Big Guy plot device? Uh, we did, I don't know if we really talked about that too much. Okay, I would be interested to find out what he would say if he would. He seemed he seemed weary in general during this one of the ten minute phone interviews right, that the yeah, UFC yeah. puts you through. I, well, I think I think that's understandable. So yeah, a lot of intrigue going down this weekend at UFC 192 in Houston. Uh, we'll see if if Daniel Cormier can solidify himself as the holder of the UFC light heavyweight title. We'll see how Alexander Gustafson's strength of schedule holds up in retrospect, and we'll see if. Uh, if Jonathan Dwight Jones is present in the front row, maybe wearing a, a mask with a mask under another mask underneath it, <laughs> like uh, dude Dito brought into the ring, Justin Justin McCulley. Justin McCulley. Well, the difference with John Jones would be you wouldn't have to tell everybody no. that's John Jones, right? And even if John Jones is wearing a mask, I feel like you could still pick him out. <laughs> All right, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, three kids have died nationwide playing high school football so far this season so basically three deaths in a month so i guess this week i'm just staying can you imagine the public outcry if three high school kids died in one month doing almost any other elective activity let's let's not even talk about mma because we all know if one high school kid ever died doing mma they would just ban it immediately the president or or tipper gore or whoever is in charge of banning stuff would just hit the ban button and mma would be immediately banned but i'm talking about normal stuff like marching band pole vaulting if three kids died in one month playing the trombone politicians would be all on the tv being like trombones are a menace trombones are killing our children True in a different way, but yes, I see your point. But since it's football, everybody's just kind of like, well, football's a pretty rough game. I'm just saying. Just saying. Well, just saying. That has nothing at all to do with MMA. Well, Chad. You know, I'm just over here innovating. We know what you're doing. Don't do this again. Everyone's saying it out loud, listening to the podcast right now. can't do this right now. You're just over there playing. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chad, I'm just saying, I know you saw today that the UFC announced a fight in new york city oh yeah bought my ticket my plane ticket i'm ready to go Madison april 23rd april right around 23rd. my birthday yeah birthday happy birthday to me well i think we know what's going on here right we're gonna put one on the books so that we can challenge the whole thing in court and finally end this new york ban uh i'm just saying two things about this chad one i hope more than anything i hope that this ban gets overturned just so we can stop talking about when is MMA in New York going to be legal because that has just been a tired topic of conversation for years now and I, I could do without it if we never have to have that conversation again. So please, please, New York, let's just, let's get this over with. We know it's inevitable anyway. Also, Chad, I'm just saying you and I both lived in New York City for brief periods of our lives. That's a fact. What do you say we put together a nice little road trip Missoula, Montana to New York City, New York. We get a camera crew to go with us. We'll call it looking for a fight. <laughs> and maybe one of us will uh, lick Matt Sarah's head when we get to New York. What do you say? I think I'm in. I'm the best saying. part is when we get to New York and then we have to get in our rental car and drive across the river to go to the Trump Taj Mahal in New Jersey to watch this fighting event. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
I know some people. Don't worry about it. Just I know saying. some people. Anyway, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 192 and to look ahead to October where there is only one other UFC event. So we're going to have to come up with some stuff to talk about. Maybe we do an all questions considered episode. Maybe we do more than one. Who knows? <laughs> As for right now, though, we're done. We're through. We are out. You got people in Jersey? Oh, yeah. Can oh, hook I us up. I got some people. When we have to drive across the river, when we have to drive north to Uncasville to watch this UFC event in Connecticut. Oh, yeah. I'm all up in Uncasville. Stop by the Dave and Busters. I've heard great things. You don't mind sleeping on food, do you? No. It'll be a step up. Did I ever tell you about the time me and my wife went